Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Over the last few months, a large chunk of my conversations have veered towards a single topic. After a while, I got a little obsessed with the topic, and I started asking people about it directly. That generally elicited sighs and groans and comments that sounded a little like this. I feel furious. That's about it. That's all I can describe it as, is just pure fury. I feel very um, claustrophobic. I feel angry. You feel a little bit impatient. Uh, It's really stressful. I am initially angry, and then I settle in and say, turn up the tunes, get Spotify going, and just relax. It's either that or take a Xanax, and I don't have a prescription yet, so... Those were commuters we tracked down in Atlanta and Chicago. And they're talking, of course, about traffic, something that affects the health, mental state, wallets, family life, and work options of so many Americans. Which kind of makes you wonder, could traffic be fixed? Or is it just destined to trap us in our cars for more and more time each year? There's general agreement that congestion in our major urban areas is getting worse. Michael Manville is an associate professor of urban planning at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. His focus is traffic. And he says if you live in or near a major urban area, you probably spend a chunk of your day in gridlock. Los Angeles, New York, Washington, D.C., that metropolitan area, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, Atlanta. In general, the bigger and denser a city you are, the more traffic congestion your roads have. Rush hours have expanded as we try to avoid driving at the worst times of day. Stress has grown as people grapple with the unpredictability of traffic. So one day it could take 30 minutes to get to work and the next day it takes 50. And the costs don't end there. One of the most underappreciated impacts of traffic congestion is the pollution that results from it. When vehicles are idling and moving slowly or just going stop and go at around 10 to 15 miles an hour, they emit much more pollution. Uh, They emit more carbon, which sort of matters for climate change and sort of these global concerns. But at a local level, they're likely to emit much more sort of what we call local emissions or, or local pollutants like fine particulate matter or benzene and things like that. And these have been strongly associated with increases in asthma, increase in other respiratory diseases, uh, increases in cancer, and most especially increases in uh, premature birth and low birth weight. Those costs, Manville says, are mostly borne by people whose homes are between 500 and 1,000 feet from the congested road, which means that not all of the costs associated with traffic are paid by people who drive a lot. It's the drivers who suffer from lost time. It's the drivers who suffer from stress. It's the drivers who suffer from most crashes. But you also have people who just live near freeways, and those folks tend to be uh, much lower income than the population at large, and they breathe very polluted air. Naturally, Manville has spent some serious energy thinking about how you make traffic better, noticeably better. Now, politicians also say they want to make traffic better, but Manville argues they've tended to embrace solutions that the evidence doesn't quite bear out. Certainly the most long-standing approach to fighting traffic congestion has been to build more roads. Right, and that could be building entire roads, which we don't do very much anymore, or it could be widening existing roads, which was very, very popular in sort of the last decades of the 20th century, and we still do some of, much more in some parts of the country than others. But like, you know, out in L.A., we now, the 405 freeway 
is now something like 16 lanes, and that is the, the result of progressively adding lanes to deal with its chronic congestion. If you add a lane, and then as a result, the traffic starts moving faster, because it does. You know, if you, if you add some capacity, then in the short term, the traffic is going to start moving a little bit more quickly than it did. But what that does is it makes driving more attractive on that road. And so within a matter of a few weeks or a few months, the improved traffic has convinced more people that, hey, the roads aren't so bad. And once that happens, they're terrible all over again. But there are other solutions politicians have touted, like improving public transportation. Manville says public transportation is a great thing, and investing in it often makes sense. But will that investment help traffic? So I think the easiest way to answer that is to just think of the places in the world that have the most comprehensive, sophisticated public transportation systems. Everybody probably has their own list, but what comes to mind for me are Tokyo, London, New York, Hong Kong, some of the other big European cities, Paris. They all have terrible traffic congestion. So, okay, if that's not going to work, how about creating more dense, affordable housing in the city or just right outside it so that everybody doesn't have to trek in from a low-density suburb? Manville says that's not going to work either. Again, think about big, dense places like New York City. Has that density solved their traffic? Not so much. Also, just as a side note, trying to convince people not to live in suburbs is kind of a heavy lift. There's a saying I... I forget exactly where it came from that says that, you know, trying to change transportation by changing the organization of sort of American society is like uh, moving a picture by moving the wall. So how could we deal with traffic? Michael Manville from UCLA says, if you really want to figure out how to curb demand for something, you've got to understand how it works. Something to understand about traffic congestion is that as a phenomenon, it's nonlinear, which is to say that the majority of the delay or a substantial proportion of the delay is caused by sort of the last few vehicles entering the road. Hmm. And so you can just imagine that if you're driving on a road at midnight and nobody's on it, uh, and then one other person gets on the road with you, neither of you are slowed down. Mm -hmm. right? So the road can absorb a lot of people up to a certain point without really slowing anyone down. Once you get past that tipping point, however, each additional vehicle results in a lot more delay. Hmm. And so you can have situations where a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco, the population is growing but not that much, but you only need to add in places where the roadway system was already under so much strain. You only need to add a few more vehicles at peak hours to really see fairly sizable increases in delay. When you think about, and I'm sure people ask you all the time, could traffic get better? Could it? Could, is there anything we can do about the awful traffic? Absolutely. Okay. What can we do? Uh, the one thing that will work, the only thing that has ever worked, is to price our roads. Okay. Does that mean like having turnpikes all over the place, toll roads? Yeah. So uh, it's a very specific type of toll that's called a congestion charge. And it is a dynamic toll, which is to say that the level of the toll rises and falls based on the demand for the road at a given time. And so it might look a lot like a toll gantry that you see on many toll roads in the United States, you know, with an easy pass or a right, something right, like right. that that you drive mm -hmm. under. But it is not designed 
to raise money, which is what most toll roads in the United States right now are designed to do. They just raise some revenue either to pay for the cost of building the road or to defray overall government costs. This is a toll that at 8 in the morning, when lots of people want to be on the road, it's higher. At midnight, it's lower, and it might in fact be zero. That the sole purpose of the price is to allocate the road space so that it works. It's sometimes called performance pricing, because rather than the government saying, well, we want to raise this much money from this road, what they say instead is, we want this road to flow at 55 miles an hour. That's the performance standard. And the price can rise or fall. The price can float to meet that standard. It almost sounds like, you know, there's a fair amount of demand for gold. Like a lot of people would like to have gold. And so it's pretty expensive to buy it if you want it. And I feel like you're saying like it's very desirable to be on the road at eight in the morning. So we're going to charge you a lot for that because there is a lot of demand for this thing. Absolutely. And you don't even have to think about it as gold. You can think about it for what it actually is. A freeway going into a major metropolitan area, right? A a freeway going into New York City, going into central Atlanta, going into downtown Houston, the 405 into LA. That's just, it's land. It's real estate. And if you look at the price of the surrounding land in all those places, you know, it's, it's often some of the most valuable land in the world. Right, right. That if you wanted to occupy a piece of land in New York City or Los Angeles, you would pay a lot of money. But if you had a car and you wanted to get onto some publicly owned land at eight in the morning, it would cost you nothing. You know, anyone who has ever suffered through an economics class knows that when you control the price of something, when you hold the price of something down below what sort of the market rate is, one of the results you get is a shortage. And congestion is basically just a shortage of road. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Michael Manville, a professor at UCLA and an expert on traffic. Okay, so I think the first question that most people would have listening to that is like, well, that's an an interesting idea and it might reduce traffic. But here's the thing. I live 45 minutes out the side of the city. I have to get into the city and I cannot be paying like $10 every day to go in. So one of the objections absolutely that people have when they hear about congestion pricing is they look at a crowded freeway in their city and they just say, my goodness, you know, there's thousands of people on this road. We would have to get rid of hundreds, if not thousands of them to make it go faster. The, the toll would have to be astronomically high. Uh, and I think it's true that in some areas at some times, tolls could be quite high. But I think it's also important to remember that a congested road, most of the delay on it comes from the last few vehicles. Right? It's that, again, this idea that congestion is a nonlinear phenomenon. This is sort of a, a rule of thumb, but you would really only have to have a toll high enough to get sort of like 4 or 5% of the drivers off. And that could lead to something as large as sort of a 15 to 20% increase in speed. So you would get yeah. a, a very noticeable increase in traffic speeds just from removing those last few drivers. Now, again, in some places... Getting rid of that proportion of drivers might require a high toll, but I think in many places the toll would not be super high. What do you do about the fact that for somebody who's making like 300k a year, great, they they can pay the toll and they can get to work faster, and it it all is wonderful. And for somebody making thirty thousand dollars a year, they can't really afford the toll, but they've got to get to work, and nothing is working about that situation. 
I think, I mean, that's a very real concern, but I, I would say it's a concern even when the roads are free, right? I mean, driving by itself is expensive. You know, if you're rich, it's easier for you to buy a nicer, more comfortable car. It's easier for you to pay for insurance. You can buy gas more easily. The inequality that is implied by sort of we're going to charge for access to roads is not the only inequality that exists in urban travel, right? It's good to be rich, right? I mean, things are easier when you have more money and things are harder when you have less. But the nice thing about a congestion charge is that if it does impose a sort of equity burden, a burden on lower income people, it also comes with a built-in solution to that problem, which is that it raises a lot of money. And so if the rich people want to just pay and they don't sweat it and they go on their merry way driving and you have some set of folks who are uh, well off enough to be able to drive, but not so well off that the toll isn't a big problem for them, well, we can use some of that revenue to help them out. And this is not unprecedented. Right now, if you look at the rest of our urban infrastructure, we regularly price water and gas and heating oil and electricity Mm -hmm. and so forth. Not for nothing, there's a reason why we don't have chronic shortages of those goods. Right? We don't have blackouts every day. We don't have the toilets back up every day. We don't have massive shortages of heating fuel every day. A big part of the reason for that is that we allocate those things by price. Right. We don't say you can have as much electricity as you want, go for it, and just see how it works out. Exactly. And, we, and so we understand that to efficiently allocate those vital pieces of infrastructure, um, we need to price them. We also understand that putting those prices in place can be a big burden for some folks who don't have a lot of money. And that's why virtually every state, every utility has some sort of lifeline program where they take money paid by folks who can afford it and use it to help subsidize access to the goods for people who uh, have less money. There is absolutely no reason that we couldn't do the same thing with congestion prices. How do you know it works and where has it been tried and like where could I go to see this? Okay, so I think there's two ways to think about this. One is that if you just think conceptually about what traffic congestion is, then you, you understand that pricing is the only thing that solves that problem. So again, if you understand that congestion results because a very valuable asset is underpriced, and so as a result, too many people want to use it at a particular time, then just logically, the only thing that is going to re- ameliorate that is making it more expensive at that time. Mm-hmm. So that's like sort of just the, the logical or conceptual uh, basis behind it. If you want to see it in action, Singapore has used some version of congestion pricing since 1975, I believe. Wow. And it has used sort of more sophisticated electronic road pricing since the late 1990s or early 2000s. Uh, Singapore is a very dense city. It's denser than San Francisco. Its freeways move pretty consistently at 55 or 60 miles an hour. Whoa. You can also see examples of this along certain what we call high occupancy toll lanes throughout the United States. The SR-91 roadway in in Orange County, for instance, is a great example. It's a congestion-priced roadway that sits in the middle of a free freeway in Orange County. And during rush hour, you will see traffic snarled in the free lanes and zipping right along at 55, 60 miles an hour in the priced lanes. A variant of congestion pricing is it at work in places like London and Stockholm, where driving into the center 
of the city. And this is not freeways, but this is driving into the downtown. You incur a charge to do so. Uh, and that has been very successful as well. The first day of London's congestion charging traffic delay went down by about 35 percent. So this is an issue that crosses party lines. It's not partisan. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican if you're, you know, stuck in traffic every morning. Um, but I have not heard a lot of politicians talk about it. Do you see, I mean, it's kind of a local thing, but do you see mayors or governors um, talking about this, doing congestion pricing, really trying to uh, make people's commute uh, better? So congestion is absolutely a much bigger priority at the local and sometimes the state level than it is at the national level. Right. It's not something that the national government has a lot of concern or authority over. And it's also just not something that even if you look at polls, you know, if you ask an American in a Gallup poll or something like, is congestion bad? They say yes. Mm -hmm. But if you ask them, like, name the top three problems in your region, only in a handful of regions does congestion rank really high. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it becomes much more an issue that mayors and city council members uh, and in smaller states like Massachusetts governors tackle. And the question of, you know, do I see these elected officials embracing congestion pricing? What I would say optimistically is that more people are willing to talk about it now than they were 10 years ago. I think it's a hard political sell. I mean, this is people are very accustomed to the roads being free. They're also very accustomed, unfortunately, policymakers having told them that other things would solve congestion. Being told that because we're building transit or adding road capacity, the problem was going to get better. So I think it's been difficult to sort of go back on that and say, actually, we were wrong. The only thing that's going to solve this is pricing. But I, I'm optimistic that as more and more places, many of them outside the United States, uh, experiment with this, mayors in the United States will look around and say, you know, there's no reason we shouldn't be part of this success. Michael Manville is an associate professor of urban planning at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. His research focuses on traffic. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. One more song about moving along the highway. Can't say much of anything that's new. You heard from some commuters in Atlanta and Chicago at the beginning of this segment. Well, we asked those folks. What would the world look like without traffic? <laughs> I cannot imagine a world without traffic. So are we talking about the Tesla uh, super underground tunnel train? Because bring it on. <laughs> Although it seems kind of Jetson-ish to me. I cannot imagine a world without traffic. Mm, that's a good question. I, I feel like probably more people from the city would probably live out there if they didn't have to deal with those type of commutes. Wow, Chicago would be absolutely amazing. I, I love the city, but it's so car-centric. Um, it's really frustrating. I feel like that would be what world peace would feel like. <laughs> We've got lots more about Manville's idea of congestion pricing, how it works, places where it's been tried. That's at innovationhub.org. 